Welcome to episode 55 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper. Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about my online classes, workshops, how-to books, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, and my new papermaking masterclass, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up for the newsletter at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Joanna Stoyan, a British-born artist currently living and working in Minneapolis. When I met Joanna there a few years ago, she gifted me a black t-shirt with the word artist in white and all caps written across the front. We began our conversation talking about self-identifying as an artist. That was fun. Joanna got interested in hands-on learning during a five-year decorative painting apprenticeship in France, and that interest led her to travel to Japan where she discovered the art of paper folding. When I got back to England, so I must have been back in England at the time, I was just, you know, origami is amazing. I want to learn all about it. She was inspired to create her own designs, which she has published in a couple of books. You can read all about her books and watch Joanna read her latest children's book, Always Be You, in the show notes. Enjoy our conversation. Joanna Stoyan, welcome to Paper Talk. It's so fun to have you on, and I remember meeting you in Minneapolis, I don't know when it was, five years ago or so, and you gave me a t-shirt. It was lovely. We were at, uh, we were at Amanda Dagener's house, a fellow papermaker, and the t-shirt is black, plain, and says artist in bold white letters, and I love it, and I want to hear how that came about. Thank you for having me, Helen. I'm very honored to be here. Um, yeah, that t-shirt came about. Um, we had actually just finished watching the um, Helvetica a documentary, yeah. Eric and I. Uh, that's the typeface. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Helvetica. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic documentary. Mm -hmm. And um, I think... Yeah, you know, five years ago, gotta gotta think back five years. But I think at the time I was um I was just, you know, often as artists, we I don't know, when people say, What do you do? you know, mm -hmm. it's often this kind of, well, I'm I'm kind of an artist. I mean, you know, some people are very um I don't know, often I find artists are kind of well what do you really do you know does that matter who are you how do you make money it's all of these questions mm -hmm. and um it's often when people have multiple jobs as well and art is one of them that they kind of put that on the end it's like oh mm -hmm. i do this that and the other i'm also an artist and maybe not even mention it and um I was doing, I think at the time, also a project maybe at MCBA, and we're, we're talking a lot about contained narratives. And I just thought, you know what, this is, let's just make a walking book. Like, ma let's make this almost 
as a book, I, I really wanted the design black and white was um, important. Helvetica was important for kind of like, you know, a sturdy, uh, affirmative message of this is who I am. And what's really interesting is, so I made that when um, Eric and I uh, used to rent a space at the Casket Arts Building in Minneapolis. It was a big artist studio, you know, one of those buildings converted into multiple studios. Mm -hmm. And um, we had um, like an art crawl one summer. And so I had made these on our floor was a lady who printed T-shirts. Uh -huh. And so I had asked her because she was asking, she was, I think she was trying at the time to get artists to send her images of her, of their work. So she could print a t-shirt and you would be a walking display for your work. Uh -huh. And um, I think she had asked Eric and um, me to provide something. And I really didn't see someone walking around with handmade paper, kind of a weird thing on a t-shirt. Um, and we were having this discussion before we'd seen the, the film. And I think I just thought, you know, this is actually what I want to do. Made this T-shirt and then um, I sold it to multiple people in the building mm. who still to this day really love it. And I get emails actually from time to time with artists saying, you know, I still have this T-shirt that I bought of you um, or I need another one. I really love it. And I think that... It gave a lot of people, including myself, I still wear mine and Eric does too when he teaches a lot. Um, just that kind of, it helps you with your sense of self a little bit. You know, it gives you that kind of pat on the shoulder. Um, not that everyone's um, got issues with, um, with themselves um, and self-acceptance, but it's just that extra um, validation, I would say. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it is, it's, it's a bold statement, this mm -hmm. black shirt with the white word. And um, yeah, I think people need to be, I think people do have uh, inhibitions. I know when I was a, a younger artist, even now wearing that shirt is a little uh, intimidating. There's something, yeah, you're like, okay, what is, what are people going to say to me yeah. seeing me in this shirt? And it is, uh, isn't it? yeah, yeah. It also makes you realize how, what we wear, you know, people... It's like, you know, never judge a, a, a book by its cover, but that's exactly what we do. When we see yeah. someone and how they dress, that's exactly what we see. And right. we ask and we, we think we know them or we ask questions internally just by what someone is wearing, which I find fascinating. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's also, it shows you, you put a word on your body, mm -hmm. like how much that changes. Right. Um, and it really, you know, in thinking of book and book arts and contain narratives, I mean, nothing is more contained than wearing something that says who you are and walking around and the different interactions you have with people. So it's been quite interesting. Um, it's funny that you bring it up because I have some folded in my drawer that's, you know, um, though well, I've, never, I've never spoken about it for so long. <laughs> Yeah, and the and the thing about one word also, because people ask me all the time, what do you do? Mm -hmm. I'm an artist. And it's like, how much do they really want to hear? How much mm -hmm. do I want to tell? What's my elevator pitch? Mm -hmm. There's so many facets of it. And um, yeah, it's hard to, to, yeah, to navigate. 
So I also find though, as an artist, you often get pigeonholed. Yes. I remember it's like what type of art you have to say one, but you know, I'm not, I make a lot of things out of paper, but I also do other things. And so I always kind of hesitate when I have to say what my medium is. And I, I sometimes just want to shout, like I'm yeah. just artist. It doesn't have to be because, you know, if you say you're a paper artist, but then you make something out of metal, then, you know, does that mean that you're like a phony paper artist? Or, so I really don't like that about kind of pigeonholing everything really. But Yeah, that's a great point because people always ask, when I say I'm an artist, they say, oh, do you paint? Yeah. Like that's the only kind of art. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's complex. So yay, yay for the t-shirt. Oh, yay. <laughs> okay, well, let's dive into um, sort of your background, where you grew up, and um, how you got interested in paper and books. Okay, so um, I grew up in London. I'm born and raised in London, in, in England, London, London, UK. Yeah. Um, I, I better say that because, you know, in America, we don't know where right. London is. Eric and I actually did visit an a London in near North Carolina, <laughs> definitely not the same place. <laughs> right. So uh, born and raised in London, and uh, my parents are journalists. I did not have um, a creative, you know, background of artists or whatever. Um, when I was 12, my parents, we all moved to France. Hmm. So I went through uh, the French education system <clears throat> What move? What? How did? Why did you move there? Um, my parents had a house there, and um, I have three siblings. Um, at the time, um, I think schooling was expensive. If you were to if you were to go through private schools, um, I went to public schools when I was younger, and um, I think they their main idea was that they wanted us to be bilingual, mm -hmm. and so they thought that while you're still young and your brain can adapt easily, right. um, you know, live in a new culture. And I remember, I mean, I was 12 and literally just got plonked into a French school, everything in French. Wow. Um, yeah, which is, um, I don't know if I would do the same to my child, but I do understand. But it, it did, I mean, I really value being made to feel really uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I think... Um, then you're really outside of your box. I think when we always stay within our um, comfort zones, we don't necessarily um, expand so much. I think, I mean, seeing the world through someone else's eyes and different cultures is, is really valuable, I find. So anyway, went to France when I was 12 and then decided... Um, the French education system gets complicated when you're 18 for, um, they have the French baccalaureate, which is really tedious. And so I went back to England and did A-levels. Okay. And, um, maths and uh, languages. So I speak French, English and Spanish. Uh -huh. um, but my parents had, um, you know, they're journalists, they speak multiple languages. And I think they always wanted me to go to university and maybe become a journalist myself, you know, something in a real job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, I always, I've always loved doing things with my hands. 
Um, I wouldn't say that my parents encouraged it at all, but I did have, um, when I was growing up back in London, so before the age of 12, we had a neighbor who was a Polish woman, and she used to invite me over from time to time. She lived just a couple of streets away, you know, a two-minute walk. And um, she, now I understand, she was very, very, very interested in paper, Mm. And what I remember that she would do with me, she had scraps. You know, when you cut things out, you have little bits. Well, she right. had loads of these bits. And she used to make the most amazing, very um, geometric um, scenes. Mm. So she would invite me over and we would just glue these little triangles and circles together and, and make, you know, mountains with people skiing down them. Mm -hmm. um, she was, I mean, an, an oldish lady, you know, she must have been in her 60s when I was 10. So, <clears throat> sorry, we, um, uh, but that, so I used to do, and then at Christmas, she used to have just entirely paper, handmade paper decorations that she made, especially that Froebel star, you know, uh -huh. the, um, yeah. the point of star. I used to make loads of those with her. And so I think she was my first introduction to creating absolutely beautiful things. Everything in her house was the most high-end. She only shopped at, you know, the most expensive stores and just mm. gorgeous things. Um, so that was my introduction to kind of being crafty. But when I grew up, my parents um, moved quite a lot. We would buy a house. Um, we, they weren't at all flippers, but after a certain amount of years, they would move on to another one. And so I often saw my parents painting and I developed an interest from a young age of painting rooms, different colors. And it, it wasn't kind of disgusting splashes of, you know, awful stuff. It was just well painted, but bright colors. And I remember uh, my parents going away and leaving me in the house, maybe when I was 15 with my brothers. And then they came back and nearly every room was a different color. <laughs> So when at the age of 18, I was, you know, at a point where you have to decide, like, do you go to university or, you know, what do you do now? It just absolutely, I was in England and I had got into many universities. I had got good um, grades, but something was holding me back of just going to study for the sake of getting a degree. All of my teachers were saying, you know, this is the time of your life to go party and get a degree, you know, it's a few years, you'll have lots of fun. And it just absolutely didn't resonate with me. However, in France, um, from the age of 16, um, often students who aren't doing well at school, they go to into apprenticeship programs. And this mm -hmm. is a like proper apprenticeship, you know, five years, you go into a company. And so I decided actually, I want to do something with my hands. And so I went back to France and was with a bunch of 16 year olds. So I was 18 at the time and I went into the trades. I went to become a professional painter. Oh. And so for um, a few years, what happens is you, um, you work in a company. So you're actually paid, you know, you're, you're not paid that much, but you're paid. So I was an employer. So wait, let me just ask a question. So this is like, Professionally painting houses, not Absolutely. art painting. Yeah, yeah. not art painting. Right. No, this is um, plastering. This is scraping paint, mm -hmm. um, laying flooring, and painting. So three weeks out of the month, 
I was working in a company and then one week of the month I would go to um, a, a, a center and that's where you learn the theory. So I'd learn the theory of, of colors, uh, ah. the theory. And for, for students who had dropped out of school, they actually had classes like maths or um, French or English kind of basic so that when they graduated in a way um, that they had a certain level of education that they could read and write and, and actually, you know, um, write a formal letter or whatever. And so I didn't take many of those classes because um, I had a, you know, a more advanced level in that regard. And so I did extra painting. So I was put with, um, so the painting I was doing, as I said, was just house painting, but then they had like an extra wing with students who had gone past this and then were under um, higher decoration. So that might have been marbling or gilding wow. or um, a lot of trompe you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, painting different things. So um, I was quite good at painting and uh, participated in some regional competitions and won some things and whatever. And I always in my life, I, I tried to go one step higher. You know, mm-hmm. if, I, if I explore something, I want to get, you know, until I've explored it enough and I'm happy with that, satiated. So um, I was into um kind of woods and marbles and started observing kind of the patterns and the, the wood grains. And there was a school, there's a school in Belgium in Brussels called Van der Kellen. And it's the oldest school in Europe that teaches decorative painting. So imitations of woods and marbles. Um, it must be now over 130 years. They've had the same curriculum. It used to be an old man, then his son, then his wife, now the daughter. So family, tiny place in Belgium. And that's where I did my, um, that was, you know, oil painting. That's like professional painting, no more house painting. Although many of the students who came to that school, um, it's a six-month intensive course. I, I, I was working 20, 20 something hours per day. So very, very, very little sleep uh, for six months. And I paid the price of that for two years later. Wow. Okay, so I just want to hear, how long were you in the program in France? Was that a program that you completed? So, yeah, I completed. There's kind of multiple levels. Uh-huh. So I did that for about five years. Van der Kellen okay. was in, in the middle of all of that. I went back then to work okay. in the company. Okay. Um, yeah, but at that school, um, so there were different students who also were decorators. There were some artists. There were just some people interested. Um, I got a grant to do that school, but it's rather expensive. So you just get people from all around who want to do it. And that's where I met Lucy McKenzie. Um, she's a Scottish artist living in Belgium. She was also at that school. And she is a international well-known artist, um, fine artist. And she um, was doing a project, I think the first one, because, you know, in Belgium we were in France, so there were a lot of French people. Um, The school, the actual curriculum was kind of in French. um, And how how many students were there? I think there were about 12 or 16. Oh, so not that many. And was Lucy a teacher? No, no, she was a student. She was a student, okay. She was learning just like me 
and um, we formed a friendship, you know, when you're working so, so intensely, you kind of yeah. have to have a buddy. And so uh, we got to know each other. She didn't live far from the, the, from the school. And um, so when she needed some help to do, um, her work varies, but at the time she was doing these big kind of art installations, rooms, and, but they were painted on canvas and then um, put up. I mean, I think the first one I did was for a show at the MoMA with her. So she basically said, look, I need some help doing, um, it might have been marble blocks. I think it was a room. It was a, a red room with um, faux, you know, wood and marble. And mm -hmm. uh, it was an interior room. And so um, I started helping her on these big um, installation projects. And that continued for a few years. Um, obviously, after the school, I went back to France. Um, and then I would often go to her studio in Belgium or um, at various locations. One was um, in Germany. We went and we worked in the actual museum. So yeah. how... I just quickly, how was she, she was a student, but she was also a professional artist. I just want to make that connection. Like showing at MoMA, that's a big deal. Yeah, she's a, yeah, she is a big deal. But um, she wanted to, um, I think, learn these techniques. Okay, as, got it. Yeah. So um, because it's been taught kind of really how to, you know, we have all of this a special toolbox with all these special brushes and how to... Um, recreate exactly, you know, a piece of oak, for example. So it doesn't just look like some faux imaginative marble. We can actually, you know, if you wanted me to, to paint you a piece of onyx, I could make you a very realistic piece of onyx. Right. So this is, the students were all ages. Yeah. yeah it was a mixed, yeah. 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 Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cool. And okay. some were, I mean, older, older people yeah. too. Yeah. Really, really mixed. And from all over Europe. And America, actually. Mm -hmm. Wow. Cool. Okay. But I think it was there now, in hindsight, I realized. So because most of the program was really, really, really observing woods and marbles and color. So I already had my interest in color from being a painter. Mm -hmm. But here it was all about, you know, we'd mix. Um, and I should say that when I was a decorative uh, house painter, decorative painter, I would always mix my colors. So always start with a pot mm -hmm. of white and always use pigment um, to, to create the color. I'd never just buy a pot of, you know, green 192 or whatever it is. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so at Vanderkellen, <clears throat> we were reproducing um, marbles and woods, and it was really all about ob observation. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I mean, obviously it, this is a huge jump, but now in my paper art, um, I have quite a good intuitive sense of color, but I mm -hmm. think it comes from really, really sensitive observation from all of this painting stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah so it's, it's a weird connection, but mm -hmm. it, it is, I think that, mm -hmm. um, and then I think, so how did that turn into paper? Um, one of my brothers, um, so maybe a year later, I don't know. So you um, were like 25 something? Oh, no. Yeah, 20, 22, something 22. like that. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, so still kind of, is this now my career, right? Going to mm-hmm. paint, because this is a really lucrative business, um, especially mm-hmm. in America, but all over the place. You know, you go into huge chateaus and they have a damaged door and you make it look like it's, you know, never been hurt or right. I mean, all of this fake, you know, full, full painting is huge. But it, it just got tedious for me. I just, you know, it was boring. I... Um, I think I really enjoy problem solving. Mm-hmm. So I learned something. Oh my gosh, now I can, you know, make a fake piece of onyx or paint this thing. But my gosh, to do that every single day and just get paid? No way. Um, <laughs> I needed a change. And it so happens that one of my brothers was studying, he was a, um, teaching in Tokyo at a university. And at the time, obviously, I didn't have children or anything. So I decided to go and go to Japan for a month, as you do, you know, (laughs) let's go, no plan at all. Um, And so I arrived in Japan and spent a long time just wandering the streets, Mm -hmm. which as you know, because you've been, you can easily get lost. So it happened that I was in Kyoto, he was in Tokyo, so I'd gone to Tokyo and some different places. And then Kyoto... Um, I was just so magical, so beautiful. I remember just, I mean, there's paper everywhere, but colors, Japanese culture and food. It was just a magical experience for me um, to be in that country. And one time in Kyoto, I really did get lost. And I started walking down this small street and there were these, um, on the lampposts were these posters with an origami crane and then Mm. an arrow. (laughs) It was like, okay, got nothing else to do. Let's follow these. And it went for a little while until it landed me at this door of a small kind of building, Uh glass door. So I'm like, okay, what's, what's the origami crane? Like I followed the sign. And a small um, Japanese guy opens the door, doesn't speak a word of English. And I'm like, well, I saw this crane. Like, what's this about? And behind him, um, I can't remember the name of this, but there's a, a type of origami where they're all these cranes interlocked. So it's one sheet of paper that has cuts, not okay. all the way through. And so you have, you know, there might be 20 cranes that you so you fold an individual crane, but they're all linked and then you yeah. have this kind of pattern. Have you seen that? I, I have no idea what it's called. I don't know what it's called either, but I know what you're talking Eric about. Will know. <laughs> <laughs> we can post and an so image or something. That's what that guy did. Uh-huh. And so he was kind of a well-known um, origami pro- um what's it master who did this type of origami and there was a really and this is I mean she was in her 90s old lady in a corner and she was doing it and she happened to be this well-known um person to anyway I said to him I want to do this in uh-huh. my you know when you what's amazing is when you're out of your comfort zone and especially in a country like J- Japan as you've just come from there there's no other way of communicating other than like hands right. and kind of mind. Right. I mean, you just have to play out. So I managed to convey that I wanted to do this thing. I had no experience. I, but I, I was confident that I could. So he basically said, come tomorrow at this time. And so I came back and I think he was a little bit shocked. 
<laughs> um, and then I came back because so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I spent an entire day with him and this um, elderly lady. Uh, wonderful. And I, I actually did manage to make my own, you know, uh, I don't know, nine cranes together. And it was such a fun experience. Um, and the papers were gorgeous. And when I got back to England, so I must have been back in England at the time, I was just, you know, origami is amazing. I want to learn all about it. My mum being a journalist was, okay, you know, there must be some kind of organization that you right. contact to see what's happening. Um, and that's how I found the British Origami Society. Ah. So that's a folding group. Every country has a kind of a folding society, conventions and, and whatnot. So I got into origami, uh, folding things, got books out. Um, my friend, I told you about this Polish lady, she happened to also have um, some books on origami. So I started doing some folding. And of course, as I say, you know, one step ahead, I started, um, I think at the time, you know, I looked at the internet, but <laughs> I know that was old, old school. So yeah. anyway, found... Um, I found Eric's work, these tessellations, which looked absolutely amazing, like completely different. And obviously, this is what I want to learn. How do I learn this? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, you've mentioned Eric several times, and I just want to say who he is. Okay. Eric Jurdy is yeah. also a paper artist and Joanna's husband. Right. So and we'll hear how that how became. we met. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it, I know. Paper's amazing. Um, so I contact the British Origami Society. Uh, oh, what happened is, so I, um, I found Eric's work. I couldn't understand at all how to make this happen. I think yeah. at the time, you know, um, with origami tessellations, they have crease patterns, which if you've ever seen, look like the most amazing geometric artwork. Printed one of those out from the computer and tried folding along the lines. <laughs> And it didn't work. <laughs> I, I can sympathize because yeah. I got interested in paper in my 20s and or in college, actually, and then um, moved to New York City, just not for paper, but because I wanted to be in a big city. And I found the Origami Society in New York yeah. and I, I was interested in paper and folding and I hadn't done much on my own. I kind of need to do things with people. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to... Uh, origami folding event that was way too advanced for yeah. me and it totally turned me off I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't the same with me and I thought well you know how how come just scoring these lines is not making this beautiful you know interlocked uh thing yeah so I, um, I think I contacted, uh, again, the British Origami Society and said, look, can anyone help me? Because um, really, I really want to fold this stuff. I have no idea how. And they said, well, Eric, the master, is going to be in Italy. Oh. And um, he's going to be teaching this. So why don't you go to the convention there and meet him and, uh -huh. and do that? And a funny story, I think Eric would be fine with me sharing, is when uh, we, we corresponded a bit. I, I must have written to him and said, I, you know, can I do this? Or they put us in contact. Mm -hmm. And um, then when I, I went to, um, so I was back in France still painting at that time. Um, and uh, I went to Italy 
got on the train, arrived in the middle of nowhere, went to this convention and I met this American guy, you know, big, tall American guy. And uh, I'm like, oh, you know, you speak English too. And he had no idea it was me because he was expecting a really old lady. He thought from the way <laughs> I wrote my emails, I was an 80-year-old fan of his. Oh my gosh, that's funny. <laughs> so he was really surprised that I was in fact a young um, person. <laughs> and um, we did a lot of folding um, he was a great guest. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time with everybody folding and it just really sparked in me this huge curiosity into um, what paper folding could be. I wasn't so interested in, um, um, what do they call it, representational. I, I am much in, more interested in the abstract mm -hmm. um, and the shape and form. And, and I, he just blew me away with what he had done. He also had at the time um, that book, Origami Tessellations. So I think I bought a copy. I think that's when it was just coming out. So that's a book that Eric wrote. Yeah, yeah that's his mm -hmm. first one. He's working on the second one right mm -hmm. now. Um, so his first book. And... Um, I remember going back to France, back to um, work, and kind of folding the hexagon, uh, spread hexagon, I don't know how many times. Uh -huh. I don't know if you ever got into tessellations, but just... Not very repetitive. much. Repetitive. Oh, you know, tessellations are all about, um, you build upon a grid. And mm -hmm. so a huge amount of time is spelt, spent, sorry, taking a flat piece of paper and either creating an equilateral triangular grid or square. And, you know, if you want to make something big, you're just folding that sheet of paper for you know, many hours. But I found it really, really calming. I just, I just love the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, a year later, Eric, I think, was back in Italy this time. Just, you know, he was going to that convention because it was so wonderful and kind of said, oh, do you want to come along? And um, so is that well, a convention that happens every year the, yes, in does, Italy? Doesn't happen. Yeah, it does. It doesn't happen at the same place. That was in Vedbania, but now it happens in another area. But it's, What's yeah. the name of the convention, just in case anyone's the, interested? Um, uh, Italian Origami Convention. Okay. Um, CDC, I want to, I think is the, uh, but uh, yeah, Italian Origami Convention. Okay. Each country has one. They have an English, a, a, one in New York, as you mm -hmm. went to. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, basically, Eric and I fell in love in Italy. Uh -huh. And then uh, he went back to America and I went back to Europe. And long story short, he decided to quit his job and come live with me in France. Uh -huh. And um, we lived together in Alsace on the border of... Uh, France and Germany I was working as a decorative painter in a company and um, at that time we had oh my gosh so much free time right <laughs> and uh, we, we really did spend a lot of time uh, folding and doing um, some good collaborative artwork and he just did his own thing too I mean he had time to explore. Was he working also? No, he wasn't allowed okay. to because oh, of the right. way um, visas. So he right. wasn't allowed to work um, and I was working. And then he decided, I think after two, two or two and a half years, um, that he wanted to go back um, to America to, you know, back into 
earning some money. Uh-huh. And um, so I moved over. Uh, we got married mm-hmm. in France and then we moved over to Minneapolis together. Um, his parents are from here. His family was here. So he already had connections. And um, and you're in Minneapolis now still. Yeah, I'm in yeah. St. Paul, but oh, it's Saint the Paul. Twin okay. Cities. Yeah. yeah. Most people know Minneapolis. So that's where we are now. And um, yeah, so, oh, I should have said actually, so that's a bit of a huge jump. Uh, When, uh, before he moved over, yeah, he didn't actually, I mean, we fell in love, but then we had a long distance relationship and he happened to be living in the upstairs of Amanda Degener's house. Right. So I would come for um, the maximum visa uh, um, would allow me to come for three months. So I would come for three months at a time and um, didn't have much to do, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would spend um, months at a time working at Cave Paper. They had an internship program oh. so you could come. And Amanda was a lovely lady. Oh, she is a lovely lady. Yeah. Um, and she kind of said, well, you can come and see what I'm doing. And oh my gosh, Cave was amazing and um, handmade paper was awesome. Again, something that now this is what I want to do. Um, yeah. It really inspired me. And um, Amanda and Bridget, Bridget O'Malley was also, you know, Cave was not where it is now. Mm-hmm. They were both very generous with their time and space. And um, I would help out do some, doing some different things and then also could use the studios to make my own. And that's when... Um, I had made, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. You learn how to make paper. Well, what do you do? Make the biggest sheet you can. So immediately, <laughs> I was onto six feet um, sheets of paper. Wow. Um, uh, so yeah, and then and then um, so that's what sparked my interest in handmade paper. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here, and I want to tell you about the Paper Studio my free Facebook group that has been evolving over the past several years. I'm re-energizing it in 2020 to include a monthly paper challenge. It's also a place to share what you're working on, get encouragement when you need a little push, be inspired with new ideas, tips, and tricks, all having to do with paper, of course. Join us by going to Facebook and searching for the group, The Paper Studio. Now back to the episode. And then I think it was actually when Eric and I were still in France because of that interest in paper. I went to Japan. Oh, yeah. So with the uh, connection to origami, um, one of our friends, Tomoko Fuse, she's a Japanese origami artist. Really talented. And I don't know, she's hundreds of books under her name. Right. She had come to stay with us in France. And, you know, I casually had said, oh, I really can't wait to go back to Japan one day. I'd love to see Japanese paper making. But it was just a casual conversation. Little did I know that when she returned back to Japan, like a month later, she said, I've set up this visit for you to go and make paper. You have to go. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And um, as I say, I didn't have... um, too many responsibilities at the time, jumped on a plane, left Eric behind. I'm going to go make paper. 
um, she had also, you know, let me, connected with me with a friend who picked me up at the airport, let me stay with them, took me to this paper maker's place. I land there, you know, dropped off in a, in a car <laughs> at this paper making facility. This guy greets me. He has no idea who she is. <laughs> I yeah. thought they were friends. Uh-huh. She had just reached out to paper makers saying that she knew this person, you know, she knew me and I was really, I wanted to cut off. So can you imagine? I just, it, it was one of those shocking moments. But Kobayashi-san, um, he has uh, Kadoide um, Washi is the name of the place in Niigata Prefecture in the most amazing man. I And what's funny is Eric, a few years before that, had been invited to the um, Japanese origami convention and had been on a tour, you know, the um, hosts of the um, organization had taken him to this paper making place. He oh. didn't know, it was just years later. We're like, we have the same paper and photos from the same place. So, yeah, because there are lots of paper makers in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot fewer than there used to be, but there are many. So that's yeah, really coincidence. It was a, yeah. It's really strange coincidence because this is way out in the middle of nowhere, this tiny town. He's the only paper making facility. So it's not one of those paper making towns, you know, there are where everyone's doing it. But right. What, and how are you, are you able to communicate with him? Like, how are you? Speaking? No, I mean, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Japanese. So, um, they would call me Yoani. Uh-huh. <laughs> they wrote it all over the wall because I went during the Kozo harvest. So oh, in the okay. winter. And um, so the owner, uh, uh, Kobayashi, he would, um, he's the only way that village is staying alive in Japan. Mm-hmm. So he really, every single um, inhabitant comes to help with the um, Kozo harvest. Um, it was an amazing experience of, um, I'm quite a strong, strong person. And so I would help with the, you know, he would be waking up at four o'clock in the morning to steam the Kozo. And then um, the village elders would come kind of at seven o'clock to start peeling off the bark. And so Mm -hmm. I would be helping, you know, with the wheelbarrows of this really hot, steamy stuff. um, and, And then sit there, I wish I could have understood what these ladies were talking about because mm. it sounded a lot like, you know, village natter of, you know, right. whose um, <laughs> children are doing whatever. And, and they would um, bring all of these um, beautiful sweets that they would make, you know, all these homemade treats and oh. we would have tea time. They would use words like tea time. You only come, it's tea time. But, you know, you learn with your eyes. Yeah. And so this was an amazing experience. There was one um, employee who did speak a little bit of English. And so when I was around him, he was able to translate a little bit. But Kobayashi-san would, um, we would talk, you know, with our hands and then we'd draw pictures to each other. And so when he was telling me about, like, what he was putting in um the vats or whatever he would draw pictures and say like co2 and this 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 add this uh-huh. kind of um you know we're going to go in a truck and he would draw his little truck and then you know come at this time he'd write down the time on pieces of paper um <clears throat> i 
should say though that um, one of the, so there was this guy who worked there who did speak some good English, but we hardly ever saw him. But if if there was an uh, an urgency, he was able to help. Um, and it was really cool. I actually went to a Japanese school and taught origami to the children,、oh. um, which was fun. And、uh, I was staying with a girl who was working there. Her English was very very limited, but. More than his, and so、mm-hmm. between all of us, we kind of made it work. And I stayed there for a month,、um, just making, you know, experiencing what it was like, what it is like to work, you know, in a Japanese、um, paper facility, handmade. And he makes、um, one of the main reasons that he can sustain himself and and all the people that work for him is he makes.、Um, High end. There's a sake company. I think、oh, okay. it's called Kubota, and、uh-huh. he makes their handmade paper labels. Okay. So he's an artist and makes amazing things. And many of the people who work for him also do other things. I mean, I've seen、um, some of their artwork. But to pay the bills and to make it all run, he gets these huge quantities of labels that they're making, churning out that he delivers by hand.、Um, and are the are the labels? Is it just sheets of paper, or is he doing some technique to make them unique? Or no, it was just sheets of just paper sheets of, of paper. a certain size, and I'm sure then they got printed on、yeah. elsewhere. He did.、Right. He just delivered these gorgeous sheets of you know beautiful paper. Mm. And that was my introduction to Japanese paper making,、um, and still to this day we communicate. I get friends who I know who speak Japanese. I write letters, they translate them, and he sends me often、uh, Japanese letters with lots of photos that he's、oh. printed.、Um, uh-huh. So we communicate、um, through.、Uh, and that, so this is when I went back to wherever I was at the time, France. That experience of Not only being completely outside of my comfort zone, his you know huge generosity to teach. I mean, he, I was a stranger. Can you imagine just taking in a stranger, yeah, feeding、right. me? I was part of their family with their children.、Yeah. We take naps together. I mean, it, it, remarkable experience.、Um, good people do exist. Yes.、Um, yes. And so、uh, that was I. You know, I wanted. I don't know. I think I woke up one day. So that that experience really just, you know, shaped had a had a huge impact, and it also taught me of how we can communicate with others without using words. You know, we especially、mm-hmm. in the West we depend so much. Oh, you don't speak good enough English or whatever. You know, right? But we can. We're all human beings, and so just through the way we feel each other, you know. Um, you can really communicate on a different level, and so my,、um, I think I woke up one day and said to Eric, "I'm making an origami book, and I don't want it to have a single word." And that's、um. where Origami for All came,、um, and it was a really strange experience because I have to be honest, I don't. It just out of the blue, literally, I started creating my own models. I was just、wow. like they were just coming out of me. And、um, I really wanted to make a book that anybody. I thought, you know, anyone in the world I want can pick up this book and follow the diagrams. Which always frustrated me in so many origami books is that I'd get halfway through and I just 
the arrows didn't make sense, the text didn't make sense, it made me really frustrated. I wanted something that was really clear, um, anyone could do. It's a bit like the artist t-shirt, right? Just yeah. simple, simple and clear for everyone, as long as you're an artist or not. But, um, <laughs> and so that was my first book that I made. Okay, um, let me just interject. <laughs> this is Origami for All, and listeners, go to the podcast page the show notes because Johanna said so many things and I'm going to put links to all of these places <laughs> things and so origami for all was your first book an origami book and I have a copy and I'm so glad you explained why it has no words and yeah it's, it's perfect yeah and I think and oh and in that book you know there's an introduction which just kind of explains a little bit and that's in multiple languages because mm -hmm, thought, right you know, yeah so that was important too that you can pick it up but there is a reason and you might like to know the reason in hindsight now I think that's a bit like an artist book I didn't mm -hmm. have a clue at the time mm -hmm. um I wanted to make a book I was really um intent on how it would feel and look and so rather than going to a publisher, I decided to um, self-publish. I wanted it to look like an old, um, like a 1950s textbook from a school, you know, an old, like a yeah. really, and it weathers like that. If you, if you use it a lot, it, it has this beautiful patina, kind of it's um, the way it's printed. So you know, I'm just a problem solver. So like, I want to make this book. I contacted a company in England. I absolutely wanted it to be, um, you know, ethically produced and well produced. Mm -hmm. So um, it was uh, printed in Wales by this company. Um, and I found a distributor in England. And uh, we printed a thousand copies. And I think there's one or two left I mean, yeah I think I got one of the last yeah <laughs> we're really completely out and I won't be reprinting but that was a kind of an artwork in of itself right it was a project um but in doing that project then um a packaging company you know you know that some publishers um ask authors to write a book and then you get royalties other ones they um <clears throat> It's a, like a packager. They say, we want to make this book with this person and they sell it on. So then Quarto contacted me and wanted to do um, an origami book with me. And that's my second book, which is The Origami Garden, which right. was again, it was like me curating a little show, um, origami show. So I was able at that time to contact friends of mine or um, designers that I... Um, work I liked and I tried to feature a lot of women in that book so there, there's a lot of Eric does feature in there he's not a woman but mostly um, it's uh, women who are quite underrepresented in uh, especially origami uh, you know in, in all the arts but so that was my focus creating curating and creating a, a really nice book and um, again focusing on the diagrams and the projects are by a, a range of artists is what yeah, you're saying absolutely. in that book. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's not all my models. Yeah. Right. I did design some, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, so I think that was my second book. That was when I moved to America. Um, I had that project going and then, um, let uh, me just ask you about, um, you talked briefly about 
those origami designs, your original designs just started coming out and it, it seemed like it was related to wanting to produce the first book. Yeah. And had you, had you already developed any of your own or did really. you just start? No, oh, wow. that's amazing. it was just, yeah, it was, it, even Eric was really surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly we had, and you know, but I see, it's funny because origami has such a negative connotation really when it comes to paper art. You know, you say you do some kind of origami, which is just the Japanese for paper folding. But then people kind of assume that all you're doing is cranes. And you recently did a paper talk with Robert Lang. I mean, you know, it, it, it goes yeah. really high up, right? Yeah. But just using that word, people just visualize immediately a child's um, yeah. little folding. School project. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to mention one thing too. Um, one of the projects from your book, Origami for All, the bat project is going to be in my next book, which doesn't have a title yet, um, <laughs> which has many guest artists too. So it's sort of similar to your second book. Yeah. And um, I was, I, you know, I already have the instructions from you and I folded it myself and I was really intrigued about the cut, mm -hmm. the way the paper is cut. And now I see it comes from the way the, that first, uh, the crane folding that you saw initially. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very cool. Yeah. But also I, I mean, there's that whole like origami is one piece of mm -hmm. paper that doesn't get cut. I don't, I don't follow that. Yeah. I think origami is paper folding, make cuts if you need. It's just problem solving. Right. Um, I'm absolutely not, I don't get stuck on any of that stuff. Um, and shape the paper how you want, you know? Yeah. Um, but then um, how did that, Oh, I think so. What was funny is that, uh, so we had an art studio in Minneapolis that I would go and do artwork, paper art, other stuff. And then out of the blue, um, an artist, she's called Toba Auerbach. Mm -hmm. She um, is a New York-based artist. She does do artist books, but also, you know, a huge range of stuff, an, an amazing artist. She happens to be one of Lucy's friends. Mm -hmm. And she had made these um artist books which were blocks of wood and blocks of marble and what she had done is they um they had a, a real block of wood and then they shaved off a slice and then they scanned it and then they shaved off more and scanned it and then they had made this into a book so if you turn the pages of the book it looks like you're going into the wood However, the edges of the book were white because it was printed on paper. Right. So they needed someone to make it look like the block. Uh-huh. You know, because it was this whole full, full thing. Yeah. So she contacted me and said, you know, could you do this for me? And I, I mean, like I do oil painting of never ever. Um, she sent these, you know, super expensive books to me at uh -huh. the studio. And I remember just trembling because she also sent me um, a bunch of watercolor pencils. And I was expected to finish off the book so it would look entirely like a, a block of marble. You know, it's a multi-thousand dollar item that I'm supposed to be putting water on. I mean, it was terrifying. <sighs> And I know no, no test, no sample copy. No, no sample thing. copy. <laughs> and I am a really bad, um, 
I can only work well when it comes from within. I, I, uh, I don't often do tests, which, you know, sometimes I've paid the price of that. Mm-hmm. But so I just dive right in and um, so use the painting techniques, the observation from all of that wood and marble and in a completely different medium. I mean, it was um, doing this on the edge of, of a book on paper. But the experience, I didn't know the artist books. I mean, this was the first time, like, wow, this is an artwork, but it's a book. And um, it was familiar because we're in the Twin Cities with uh, MCBA, the Minnesota Center for Book Arts. And I had got a grant. Uh, They have a a Jerome Fellowship and Jerome Mentorship Program. And they have the mentorship program is offered to people who are not book artists. Mm. They're um, artists from, you know, whatever discipline. And the um, <clears throat> the program is that you take classes in, in whatever you're interested in. So it might be letterpress printing, book binding, and then from your experience throughout the year, that leads to a project. Um, and that was my, uh, it's called Nusom, my first artist book. Well, I think Origami for All is an artist book, but my first, um, you know, artistic artist book, if you want to say, where it's, uh, where it was the handmade paper that I merged with the origami. So it's um, nine boxes. And so they, the entire, that entire book was handmade. I made every single element. It's nine different slip cases of geometric shapes. Inside is a handmade paper little book, if you want. It's a sculpture that unfolds. And so that was the first time I'd taken my interest in origami, in color, and in all the paper stuff and made this first um, book, which I was quite happy with. Yeah, and I just watched the video. You listeners have to go to Joanna's website and watch the video of Newsome. It's really incredible. And I can see the origami, and it's like one sheet of paper and these little slits and tabs that make a flat sheet become a sculpture and stand up. It's it's beautiful. It's a really wonderful work of art. And I'm just curious... um, were you still painting houses at all? You weren't doing any of that in the States. And how, no. were, you, how were you paying your bills? I'm just curious. Eric, Eric was. Okay. okay. That's the truth. The yeah. truth is, um, I, yeah, he, I mean, he was very generous in the sense that uh, we had little responsibility. I mean, we did have a house, but uh, he, he was able to, uh, he works in IT, and he mm-hmm. said, you know, you've obviously got some really good interests here, you know, use the time that you have to just pursue what you're doing. And so I'm really a doer. So I was making a lot of paper. Um, as part of the Jerome, I had 24 hour access to MCBA. Mm-hmm. So I made a, you know, I was experimenting a lot with um, paper making and dyeing and all sorts there throughout that particular project. Um, and I think that was my first, yeah, that was my first kind of artwork artist book. And then, um, I don't know, just the fascination. But my, so my, the other one I've done that was also through a grant is, um, I mean, I've done other ones which haven't been put on any websites or whatever. Because, you know, it's funny how you kind of, I don't know, with technology these days, you some people put everything that they do out there 
and some people like myself are quite limited. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, for the sake of time, we need to kind of move so, along. But um, so you're producing an edition, and are, are you selling these copies of these books to special collections, private people? So that particular book, yeah, mm -hmm. I intended on making nine because mm -hmm. the, the whole number nine is in there. And then after doing the one, I said, I'm not going to okay. do this ever again. I reached out to some different collections and uh, nothing went ahead. And then two years later or a year later, I got contacted by a European book um, collector who said, is this still available? I want it. Mm -hmm. And so that now is in his collection. He has a blog called Books on Books. Robert Bollock is his name. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, he has that book. Right. Um, so you're saying you only produced one copy of that book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, and you know what's really good, Helen, is you know how with editions you put the number, like one out of nine? Uh-huh. I don't know what made me do it, but I put nine out of nine on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him, I said, you know, this is, this was a special. Um, but yeah, I think artist books are a fantastic way to merge um, kind of my interests of paper making and um, contain narrative and, and it, all of this for me is problem solving. It's like you, you come up with an idea and you just, how do, how do I want to make this work? And my um, A to Z of motherhood that you had mentioned before that, um, so this was a, another artist book. That so I wait, 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 right. I want to interject. Okay, yeah. so so I love that you say that about problem solving. And I think that is such a big part of being an artist mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that um, maybe makes sense to the non-artist. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy that you're framing your this conversation with that um, yeah, in mind. Mm -hmm. And um, so now you and Eric have a child. Yeah. And um, that sort of has led to this book, the A to Z of motherhood. Yeah. So yeah, a, go ahead and a child changes a lot. I, and he's so, two now, right? Well, he's nearly three. You know, Almost he's two three. and three quarters. We oh. count the quarters. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's funny. No, so um, yeah, it's really interesting. I I have to be honest that before becoming a mother, I hadn't ever really thought about what that does to a woman. Um or a parent, you know, any parent, what that does to someone's life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you don't really think about it. Before. No, I totally feel the same. I remember feeling, remembering things with about other friends who had children that I'd done. Like I, I just wasn't very nice to them and I yeah. had no idea what they were going through <laughs> until I went through it myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, I had time before to work on my art, to do whatever. And then um, our son came along and suddenly I realized that life in a way was no longer about me, just mm -hmm. about me, that I had this human being that, you know, first was inside of me and then that I had with me, um, which was just the most amazing. I mean, I have to say at the beginning, it was quite challenging, you know, what do you do? No one tells you what to do as a mother. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? But um, I managed to get, when he was just six months old, a grant. This was the Jerome Fellowship. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the only thing on my mind at that time, and probably still today, is my son. 
Like I couldn't think, you know, I, I always have lots of ideas. And then, you know, it's like, what from time to time I have one idea. It's like, this is the thing I need to do right now. And it just, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to make a book. Um, I think, you know, immediately I wanted it to be about motherhood, but I didn't want, oftentimes my work is just, um, it's not with words, you know, it's, it's just quite abstract colors. I, Mm -hmm. I like the universal language of color and the meanings behind color. Um, and so I wanted to make this book, but I wanted it to connect with every other mother. And I thought that this was the only way I could do that was by using words. And I intentionally made, so it's, you know, A to Z, so every letter of the alphabet and one word that I associate with motherhood. And I wanted that to be a really simple word that every mother would connect with. So there's a reason to that. It wasn't because, you know, I'm, you know, I thought choosing some easy words. I, I spent a long time thinking which words would connect with every woman who's given birth or, or just a mother. And um, then I contacted, but I wanted color to be, because I, you know, as I say, I have this big link to color, um, a, an important element. But there are some people who have just an amazing gift that they're, they're color therapists or color um mm-hmm. Uh, what do you call them, uh, specialists. So I contacted this woman, Lillian Verna Bonds is her name, and she's a colour consultant to the Queen of England. <laughs> okay. okay. And I contacted her and I said, I am doing this project, I'm an artist, and I would love to give you these words and for you to tell me the exact colour that corresponds to the words. Ah. And so I had phoned her, you know, and she she was really happy. I mean, she took a few days to think about it, whatever. And she gave me the colours that corresponded to the words in the context of motherhood. So if it was in the context of a different thing, you know... Um, It'd be a different color. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. And so, how did she give you? Did she give you swatches? No, she, names. Just over the phone. Just over the phone. Words. Yeah, words. Yeah. So she would describe the color. She'd say red, uh-huh. but this type of red with a bit uh-huh. of this, or da 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 da. And so I took that and a little bit of artistic licensing to make the. Pa- so I made the paper for the book and then dyed it the color that corresponded to the. Um, the word. What kind um, of paper did you make? That was um, an Abaca flax mix, I want to say. And um, tell me a couple of the words. Oh, like A is anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I can't remember. Um, uh, well, we'll link to the book. Yeah, I can't, um, I can't yeah. One example is good. I don't want to say something that's wrong. <laughs> but what we did in that book is I then wanted, you know, the whole process of motherhood to be involved. And so I, we, we laser, I made the text blocks for each word out of wood that was laser engraved with my ultrasounds. Yeah. So the actual text has, you know, the elements from the ultrasound and then all printed, um, all by hand, da, da, da. And then, um, I found Heidi Kyle's, um, uh, binding, I wanted piano hinge binding. Piano yeah. hinge binding, exactly. I wanted a binding that would, you know, that whole linking, you know, the yes. motherhood to mm-hmm. the child, everything. I found her binding. Um, 
and did that. She said herself that she's never seen it done on such a fine scale. You know, it's one millimeter rods I was using for that. Book. Oh, wow. So yeah. You know, really, really tight. Um, that, that was that book. And then, um, yeah, our son inspires me a lot because I'm a stay at home mother. And so I spend every day with him and yep. Yeah. I just wanted to, to mention that, um, there's a really nice paragraph you wrote about the book mm -hmm. and I'll, I'm going to put that, I think in the show notes, mm -hmm. just about explaining the ultrasound and the mm -hmm. binding and how it all, mm -hmm. everything ties into motherhood. Mm -hmm. And I also thought a lot when I was looking at it and I've known about this book for several years, I did this installation called mother tree, <laughs> which, um, is, is uh, about, similar issue, but I really focused on mother's milk and how mm -hmm. that has flowed through mm -hmm. all mothers mm -hmm. since the beginning of time and will continue to. So I love that continuum. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, having a child, motherhood for me is, it's a reflection of yourself. Mm -hmm. In having my son, I have learned so much about myself because yeah. if you question, you know, why something bothers you or, you know, I practice a lot of observation with him, you know, I let him play by himself, you know, when I'm with him. Um, and I found, you know, some respectful parenting philosophies that have really resonated that. And so, you know, juggling artwork and being a stay at home mum. I wanted, and I, this is what I'm doing, and I'm not at all saying that anyone doing the opposite is wrong or whatever. I want to be mm -hmm. clear yeah. about that. But I didn't want him to grow up constantly like him in my art studio. Because mm -hmm. for me, I see that as I'm important, right? This is what I'm doing, and you come into this. Maybe in time, he would, he would like to do that. But I really want to honor him as himself. You know, he's only nearly three. Um, and so a lot of my artwork, you know, I've talked about these artist books. They're done during nap times in the evening. Mm -hmm. And Eric and I juggle, you know, if we're working on a project at the moment, he's working on his second origami book. Um, you know, weekends become like, do you need time? You know, oh, we are obviously a family. We spend time together. Yeah. We, and I think that was really important that I let him be, you know, his, have his own interests. I'm talking about mm -hmm. my son. Mm -hmm. um, that it's not just about me, um, which is why, so spending all this time with him, we read a lot of books and we'd be getting all of these board books for anyone, you know, board books is usually zero to three um, right. thicker paged books. And the messages were awful. Mm. You know, picture books, which are geared towards older children are really good, you know, variety of themes and um, stories, just lots. And then uh, board books just tend to be, you know, a, a picture of an animal and some shapes and some colors. But if you believe that a child is a whole human being from the moment that they're born, it, it doesn't make sense to me to fill their head with kind of shapes and colors. And then at the, when they're three, start talking about empathy or, you know, right. kind of important things or that they're valued. Yeah. And so um, that led me to make um, this, my latest book, which is a children's book entitled Always Be You. Yeah which is a poem I wrote to him. Um, and then I thought, well, you know what? I think other, other people might like this too. Um, 
and this is one of those things, right? You do something and it's like, oh, this is now the next art project. Right. Um, I didn't have the time, you know, I only had so much time. So I collaborated with a different artist. But um, Always Be You is entirely made from handmade paper. Mm-hmm. So I made all the paper in that book and even the text is cut handmade paper. Yes, I, I glued just read that. that this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Were you making it? Did you make it larger? No, it's the artwork is two size. Everything is a hundred percent. So Dawn, the artist, um, the paper. Say her last name, Dawn. Dawn Cardona. Dawn M. Cardona. Yep. She, um, she cut everything to scale. Wow. She's really talented. And I, I, I really wanted to, you know, I had an idea because I did want it to be a children's book because I wanted that to be something that my son because he kept saying you know what do you do you know daddy goes to work and um Mm -hmm. and I'm an artist but you know I wanted something that he could hold that represented what I did Mm -hmm. and with a message that I thought was really important for him and so that's um I found Dawn's work and thought this would be perfect and originally we weren't going to use handmade paper like that hadn't actually come into it but when I started seeing her stuff it she was just using normal paper I mean she's got a huge amount of variety of papers um but and I, she illustrates uh, she's an illustrator with cut she's paper illustrator yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. cut paper really talented she uses scissors not an exacto knife wow. so I don't know how she does it but yeah she does and um I said you know would you mind trying this with my handmade paper instead so I like got a whole load of paper and then throughout the process I said to her, you know, if there's a certain paper that you need, if you need some different texture or color, just let me know. And so, you know, she'd say, oh, I need the, a pink like this. Uh-huh. And so I'd, um, and then what I love about it at the moment is um, we have a different art studio that's right next door to our house. So I'm easily, I can easily come and work. Um, and definitely our son comes too. Um, when, but if he's tired of it, he goes away. Um, but I, I was using the washing line outside. I grew, I, um, I dry, dry our clothes outside. Uh-huh. So I was dyeing this paper outside and just hanging it up. Um, and I love that kind of um, aesthetic of yeah, just hanging them on the clothesline like a piece of cloth. But um, great image. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so that's the latest book. Um, that I, 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 you know, you've seen throughout my artwork and a lot of it, I said, isn't anywhere, but I'm really always interested, I think, in the sense of self, who we are, where we mm-hmm. come from, mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the bigger sense of who we are. Um, and I think, you know, accepting and acknowledging children for who they are, giving them that sense. I think, um, you know, if, if children were valued and known know that, that you know all emotions are good and um you know you can be who you are then you don't get to the you know being in your 30s 40s 50s or whatever needing to wear an artist t-shirt that says like i'm confident to be who i am so um so yeah, well, you, sorry no go ahead no just i think being a mother you know just um, having that, losing that huge self, sense of ego, you know, knowing that something else is, um, you know, that you care for, you're, you're no longer number one, uh, again, is looking outside of the box for me. Um, and just uh, the most amazing uh, experience. And, 
you know, definitely there are challenging days, but just to um, spend time with another growing human being and seeing all of those connections happening mm -hmm. is really marvelous. Yeah, like going back to your experience at age 12 of being thrown into the French <laughs> school, and maybe that was one of the first times you really had to think outside of the box. Yeah. And I actually, at 16, went to Germany, and I did have a couple years of basic German behind me, so a little more experience. But And my son now is in Japan on a mm -hmm. semester abroad, and I just went to visit him, as you uh, mentioned, mm -hmm. and... Um, I could see how he has this new empathy mm -hmm. and sort of cultural sensitivity mm -hmm. and becoming a mother is a, mm -hmm. another experience like that. And mm -hmm. wow, it's been wonderful talking to you, Joanna, <laughs> and learning more about you. And I know my listeners will enjoy this conversation. Well, I hope so. Thank you for, thank you for your time. And thank you to anyone who is listening. I hope I haven't bored you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Thanks, Joanna. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them Subscribe to the series via iTunes and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. The reason, the